Okay, hey everyone, Steve here. I have a special guest for you today. I'm here with Ken Sato. So any of you who have ever read any of my books have probably heard me refer to Ken as my primary editor, the guy who edits with a 55-gallon drum of red ink and a paint roller, which is a rather, um, <laughs> yeah, I know, it's a rather it's a rather nice way to get an edit done. But, but the thing I love about Ken is he's detail-oriented. He's really, really good. And so I've asked him to join us today because we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about letter writing. This is part two of the podcast I did a couple of weeks ago. How are you, Ken? Oh, I'm doing fine. Trying to stay out of the way of the fires out here. Yeah, you're out in the Bay Area in California, and I know that uh, I'm frankly surprised I can see you even inside. The pictures I've seen of the smoke looks like, you know, like part of a swamp. I mean, it's horrible. So, Ken, when I was in college, every once in a while, I would go away for a long weekend. Now, parents being parents as they are, mine would always want to know that I got home okay, but they lived overseas. And so a long-distance call to them was pretty expensive. I mean, in those days, calling long-distance from West Texas to New Mexico was expensive because I was at Texas Tech. So I used a technique that I learned from my friends. I'd call my parents collect. The operator would ask if they would accept a collect call from me, and they would refuse the call. <laughs> no harm, you know, no foul, right? And there was no charge. But they also knew that I was safely home because that was sort of the prearranged protocol that we worked out. And frankly, I suspect the operator knew as well. Did you ever do anything like that? Yeah, but once we started working for the phone company, we kind of stopped doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You know, why be part of a criminal conspiracy, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... We've, you know, we thought we were pretty clever with that little subterfuge, but it turns out that that technique or something like it has been in use since before there were telephones. I mean, people used to do the same thing with the mail. Here's the deal. When mobile telephony first became available in the U.S., the payment mechanism, the way you actually paid was different from what we know today. In those days, if I had a mobile phone and I called you, you would actually incur the charges for the call, not me. And I know that's really weird, but it turns out that mail used to work the same way. When a delivery person arrived at a person's home with the mail, the recipient actually had to pay a couple of pennies to receive a letter. Now, that doesn't seem like very much, right? But back then, that was a lot of money. I mean, we're talking about the mid-1800s, so people were kind of careful about what they accepted and what they didn't accept. So it was kind of like current-day postage due. Yeah, I got something from somebody uh, recently. It was about this historian named Thomas Carlyle. And he used to write to a poet in America. He was an English guy. And this poet was Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he told him in a letter, Carlyle told him in a letter that he did something very similar where when he wanted to know how his relatives were doing, they used the little code. What they do is write on the back of the letter a little two strokes. And if they got the letter, they would look at the back of the letter and see if there were two strokes. And they'd know that the relative was okay and say, I don't want to pay for this letter and it back to them. <laughs> I love it. Well, 
just, yeah, a couple of marks on the back of the end. Well, honestly, that doesn't surprise me a lot because, you know, back in the days when people wrote lots of letters, usually to boyfriends and girlfriends, it was pretty common to write things like swack, right? Sealed with a kiss on the back of the envelope. And that was a little bit more obvious than Carlisle's lines, which were, you know, stroked on the back of the envelope. I mean, we all did that. I mean, I'm sure you did as well. And it turns out there was a whole set of those codes that came about during World War II. Um, love struck soldiers who were far away from home in a war zone, you know, and and they would write things like the word France, you know, the country France, which was an acronym that stood for friendship remains and never can end. That's pretty mild, but they get better. Italy, I trust and love you. Okay, we're still pretty tame now. Now we're going to take it up a notch. We get to Norwich. I love this one. <laughs> Knickers off, ready when I come home. So now now we're getting somewhere, <laughs> okay? <laughs> then from Norwich, we go to Burma, which was be undressed and ready, my angel. And then China, come home, I'm naked already. And yeah, I know. Malaya, M-A-L-A-Y-A, my ardent lips await your arrival. And then there were a couple of others that I don't dare say out loud on a podcast. Oh, you got to love it. You were in you were in comms, weren't you, in the Army? Oh, yeah. I, we used to use some codes and uh, acronyms. Use a lot of acronyms, actually. Similar to LOL nowadays, the text messages. So... For me, it was kind of easy to figure out what the text message codes were because we'd use things like C-U-L for see you later and uh, other, well, military codes. So can't say those, but. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. And there are a lot. I mean, I mean, every industry seems to have those, right? And and that's pretty cool. But uh, let's let's talk post office still, because we're still kind of in this letters thing, right? So I'm going to shift gears for just a second. Let me ask you a question. What is the wildest thing that you can think of that somebody might mail to somebody else? Well, probably something that it's probably illegal, but something that's alive or dangerous. I know back in the 30s, 20s, 1930s or 20s, that uh, the Sears mail order catalog used to advertise for prefab houses. Mm -hmm. And if you send in your order form via mail in a few weeks or whatever, a truck would pull up and they would deliver <laughs> walls, <laughs> door, windows. They deliver a house? They'd basically deliver us with, with instructions from like Ikea that you had you could actually build your own house. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. And 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 actually I like your you know, I like your your thoughts about, you know, maybe something illegal or something alive or whatever. And you're actually close, at least on the alive part. It turns out that in nineteen thirteen um, the postal service regulations that we all know about today were not really regulations yet. They were really more like suggestions, and I'm being pretty generous there. They never really said what you could or couldn't mail. So get this. In January of 1913, a 14-pound baby boy in Batavia, Ohio, was stamped, mailed, and delivered. 
by a rural free delivery carrier to the boy's grandmother who lived about a mile away. Now, when I say this, they literally had to put stamps on this kid. By law, they had to put stamps on him. So even though the postmaster general said that humans can't be sent through the mail, at least five people were mailed and delivered between 1914 and 1915. Now, needless to say, these people weren't like taped up and stuck in boxes or wrapped in bubble wrap. They traveled with a trusted postal worker who was usually selected by the parents. They were usually children. And in fact, the longest journey ever taken by a mailed child was 721 miles on a rail train by a six-year-old girl from Pensacola, Florida to Christiansburg, Virginia. And for this, her parents paid the handsome sum of 15 cents in parcel post stamps. <laughs> God. <laughs> that's a... <laughs> oh my God, I love it. That's quite a deal. I just, that, is, that is quite a deal. That is quite a deal. By the way... I, you know, I, I go back to the fact that this kid, this little boy, the baby boy, was was like like fifteen cents as well. They did insure him for fifty dollars. Okay, so you know, I mean, they 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 would at least be covered if something happened to the kid if he got lost in transit or something. I, I just can't imagine. <laughs> oh man. So. In, in the last episode about letter writing, uh, I made a commitment that I was going to write letters to a few people, and you were the first one I sent. And so I want to ask you, as the recipient of something that neither one of us have actually probably received a version of in a long time, other than you know the typical junk mail that comes through, tell me what your perception was when you got the letter. I don't care about the content. I'm thinking more about the letter itself and and any memories it brought back from from the days when people wrote letters routinely to each other well first thing was it was in really good shape it was like was not bent or it spindled or mutilated or anything and it was it was an airmail letter the old airmail red white and blue and i thought that was kind of weird because Pretty much everything goes by airmail nowadays. But I thought it was kind of interesting. You used a regular stamp, however. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I did. I did. I did use a regular stamp. It took me a little while to find uh, to find the ones that I was looking for, but I did find them eventually. <laughs> and those envelopes, by the way, I looked online for those envelopes. Those were hard to find, but I ran across a, a company somewhere in the Midwest that sold them probably more as novelty items because as far as I know, there is no like discrimination between, you know, like surface mail and, and airmail anymore. I mean, it used to be you deliberately paid extra for airmail to get something to a place quick. I mean, when we lived overseas, we would always mail stuff airmail and pay a pretty exorbitant price because otherwise you were talking five or six weeks for a package or even a letter to get back to the States. It was terrible. I imagine foreign mail still cost more uh, to send. True. That's good point. But getting back to good the letter, uh, the letter itself was on really nice paper when I unfolded it. And I know. <laughs> that was another challenge. <laughs> it had actually had a watermark on it, which. Kind of says something about how <laughs> expensive that paper is. Um, yeah, 
And by the way, let me interrupt you, Ken. For, for those of you that haven't seen paper in a long time, watermark doesn't mean I spilled something on it. It means there's something actually printed in the paper to identify the manufacturer of the paper yeah. along the way. It's yeah, pretty, pretty cool, old actually. folks know what watermark usually is. <laughs> Don't go there. Don't yeah. go there. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. <laughs> then. Hey, would a love letter work in email? That's a good question. Probably. It depends on how how you worded it. You'd have to be very careful with the wording. And yeah. I can't imagine it has the same impact, though. I think we talked about this, uh, how whatever you wrote, you have to kind of say it to yourself out loud just to hear the tone to make sure that it sounds correct. And hopefully you won't accidentally say something you don't mean. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, that's another thing about letters is you you are more careful when you're handwriting the letter because back before the age of copiers, you sent it off and you didn't have a copy. So you don't know what you sent really <laughs> once it went in the mail. <laughs> oh, and that was another thing. You used ink and hand wrote the uh, letter. It was nice ink. Thank you. Thank you. I've, uh, I, I, you know, I've been a pen collector for a long time, thanks to my lovely wife. And believe it or not, I actually use them. I mean, I, I carry them and I use them. The only problem with them, of course, is they run out of ink quickly. So I have to carry a bottle of ink with me, which has raised more than one eyebrow with TSA at airports because they want to know what this you know, nasty-looking blue stuff is in this small bottle. So that usually requires some kind of an explanation before I'm allowed to board with it, or I stick it in my suitcase, which you know has other implications. But uh, you know, let's open this and see what it is, and let's forget to put the lid back on. You know, <laughs> it's always good in a suitcase. That's bringing back memories of having a pen in my pocket and having it like absolutely, <laughs> which of course you don't notice until somebody points it out to you. <laughs> All right, what else? What else should we talk about? Is there anything else on your list that you've got? Uh, on TV the other day, I was watching book TV, and there are two historians on. Uh, one of them was a guy named Scott Berg, and the other was Doris Kearns Goodwin. And this was recorded back in 2013 at some book festival. And she said something interesting. She said, uh, in 200 years, I hope people will still be writing letters because historians need things like letters to fill out how the person thinks and, and uh, that uh, emails are have a staccato pace is the way she put it. And handwritten letters are treasures. And then Scott Berg said something about and take up a pen once in a while, because when you write, you have to compose a thought, which I thought was really a great way of putting it. And these are historians, the ones that are, you know, write about uh, great people. So hopefully people are still writing. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting, Ken, is I've written letters now to about maybe five or six people. And it's so interesting, the responses I get, they're, they're, shocked is probably too strong a word, but it's like, you know, it's like they're, they're pleasantly surprised and a little bit shocked to receive a quaint letter in the mail. And 
it's it's a funny thing because I don't say anything in the letter that I wouldn't say in an email. I mean, it's you know, it's the same message, but there's something about the gravitas of a written letter that kind of captures people's attention, which is really interesting. And I was on a phone the other day, on the phone the other day with one of my clients, who's one of the people that I was telling about this project, what you and I are doing. And I told him that I'd written a handful of letters and so on. And we were talking about some work I'm going to do for him. And we got to the end of it. I said, so what do you all have planned for the rest of the day? And he smiled and he said, you know, this conversation we've had reminds me that when I was a kid, my grandmother wrote letters to me every week and I kept them all. I still have them. And this guy is our age. I mean, this guy is no, no child. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's up there. And he said, I still have them. They're in a box under my bed. I'm going to go read them. And then I'm going to go write some letters to people. And I've had a similar kind of response from a handful of people who have said, you know what, you've, you've kind of reawakened something here. I mean, this is, there's something, I don't even know what the word is, but there's something kinetic and tactile about picking up a pen or a pencil or whatever and grabbing a piece of paper and and writing. The other thing that I've heard from people, which I think is fun, because I had the same experience as I tried to track down that stationery that I used for your letter, was people people go looking for paper and they don't have it. You know, we are so into the digital paper that we write everything on today that people just don't have tablets of paper line. I'm sure some do, but I've got boxes of them over there, right? But a lot of people simply don't have them. And they said, you know, I actually had to run down to like Staples and buy a pad of paper. And then I had to wonder, well, what's the protocol? Do I want lines on the paper or no lines on the paper? (laughs) You know, and it was like this whole series of decisions they hadn't had to think about in decades, but now they're forcing themselves to do it. It was the funniest thing. The same thing. I went went digging through boxes looking for uh, mild letters. My mom had saved all the letters I sent her uh, uh, when I was in the service and and also when I was away from home, um, working in other towns and things. So it's, it's like a personal history because you save letters. Emails are somewhere in the cloud now, but letters you... You keep in boxes and you pull them out every once in a while. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the the historians you were listening to, that they are a tangible, I, I, I hesitate to use the word, but they're like a tangible relic of a former part of your life that you hold on to because they're important in the same way that taking the time to sit down and actually write a letter is important. You know, it's meaningful. It's more than just dashing off a quick and dirty, you know, tappity tap on the keyboard to somebody, which I mean, has its place. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not giving up email because of, because of this. I mean, you and I have exchanged quite a few emails since we wrote the letters to each other. And yet there they are. And by the way, I had the same experience, right? I mean, I got your letter and it was, it was like a ray of sunshine on the day. I mean, it was just this amazing, oh my God, I have a letter. I have a real letter. And believe it or not, I didn't open it for a couple of hours. It was like, I, I just kind of want to roll around and relish this moment before I, before I open the letter and start writing. And do you know, Ken, do you know that I instantly recognized your signature from our days at the phone company together when you used to write all that technical stuff that I had to read and interpret as part of my job, there it was. It was like it was like a flash from the past. It was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like Kearns Goodwin said, they are treasures. 
Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.